If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel 36, where this morning we're going to talk about the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that may sound a little strange saying, wait a minute, we're turning to the Old Testament to talk about the gospel. How's that work? But, but stick with me. I, you, you'll see how it all comes together when all's said and done. But also remember, I think it's important to remind you of, of uh, or us of this occasionally, that the gospel is all throughout the Bible. It's not just a New Testament thing that God said, oh, I think I'm going to do this over here. It's been God's plan and design from the beginning. So we see the gospel uh, all throughout Scripture. One other note before we get into the actual text here this morning is that uh, the, the, the different cruds that are out there have been uh, running cycles through my house. We've had flus and streps and all that kind of stuff. And Friday into Saturday, I wasn't feeling well. So I've been, you know, medication and had all the sinus stuff going on. So today, I, I, I'm hoping I sound somewhat normal out there because up here, I don't sound normal at all. With all my sinus congestion and stuff, and my mouth is really dry, so if I have to pause and pull my lips off of my teeth here in a minute, you'll kind of know what's going on. Plus, if I get to rambling and head down a path some way, just know that I'm, I'm trying to be focused, but it's been, been a bit of a challenge thus far in this weekend. But in addition to that, as I worked on this message this week, I have written and rewritten and edited and deleted and added and gone back to re-edited and re-deleted and all kinds of stuff because there's so much to say and that I wanted to say in, in the course of this message, but there's just not enough time really to be able to pack it all in. Uh, so as a result, I'm not going to rehash uh, the, the, your reading if you have completed your chapter 7 reading of Radical, uh, but it was a crystal clear, perhaps best treatment I think I may have ever read of how deeply and desperately every person in the world needs to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. As I read this and saw where he takes Paul's discussion of our, our sinfulness, of humanity, our need for a savior, our need for the gospel, and walks that through in the book of Romans, it was a wonderful treatment and understanding of how important the gospel is. So if you have not purchased a copy, we still have a few copies that are around here. You can get those in the office. I'm not getting commission on those, so that, that's not why, why I'm putting that out there. But I will tell you that in my opinion, chapter seven is worth the $10 of that book. It is an amazing treatment and understanding of the importance of the gospel. But be forewarned, church, when you read that chapter, it will alter your worldview. It will challenge your belief systems at the core of who you are and what you do. And you will never view people and their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ the same ever again. It will change and challenge your thinking and how you live your life. And if you have no intention of buying the book, then that's fine. Borrow someone's copy and read chapter 7. It is a chapter that you need to see the truths uh, from Scripture. I read Radical last fall as God in his perfect timing would orchestrate it just before I went on a trip to Southeast Asia for two weeks uh, with a team from here at Mount Pleasant. Pastor Gary and I spent quite a bit of time uh, researching ministry opportunities and potential entry points among some of the unreached people groups. You may have read that term in chapter 7 if you, were looking, if you are reading along this week. And as we were looking at some other mission opportunities with some unreached people groups, the other half of our team spent a week working among an unreached people group that this church that you adopted some four years ago as God burdened you to begin praying for this unreached people group who hadn't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
At that time, uh, as best that we were able to discern, there were less than 20 believers living among the 1.3 million of this people group in Southeast Asia. Less than 20 among 1.3 million. And so you began to pray and you began to ask God to do a work there. And part of the work that took place was that God led a lovely lady we call Coffee Bean. If you get email updates and notes about that, uh, she goes by Coffee Bean. God led her to the mission field to work among this people group. And I want to tell you how abundantly God blessed. It wasn't just that, that she uh, has gone there and now works among them. God has opened doors in ways that only he can do and orchestrated that she now lives among them and works there. And now after four years, there are as many as 1,000 believers. 1,000 believers being discipled and equipped and trained to continue sharing the gospel. Church, that's a result. That's an example of the power of prayer. And so as Gary and I were there, we, we spent several hours uh, riding on a train to an area where we were going to prayer walk. We were going to meet and encourage some believers and, and try and disciple them a little bit, uh, but continue doing some more research on unreached groups in that area. And while we were there, I saw some of the poverty that we talked about. We saw a video last week as we talked about uh, sacrificing and, and uh, giving our money for a specific purpose and meeting human needs. And I saw children uh, like this right here. This is a picture that I took while we were over there. They were on their way home from school that day. Uh, they were walking around uh, barefooted. Barefoot. Is it barefooted? They didn't have any shoes on. Uh, as, they, as they were walking around, uh, and, and, and animals were roaming everywhere. There, there was animal, uh, you know, waste all over the place, animal and human waste in the streams of water that they were using for farming and for, for all of their needs that were there. Uh, we saw where entire families lived in houses with just two or three rooms and dirt floors like the one that you see uh, that, that comes up there. And I saw their, their rudimentary, their elementary uh, tools that they used to work with and, and just their lack of technology and simple inventions that we take for granted. We don't even think twice about going out to our building and getting a rake or a hoe or a shovel or a pick or, or any of those type things. And I remember seeing all this and saying to Gary, Gary, what can we do to get them resources to improve their, their efficiency and their effectiveness of how they farm and how they live their life? I told him, I said, I've seen what they can do with pointed sticks and sharpened rocks. I said, can you imagine what they would be able to accomplish if they had a hoe and some saw and some, some basic carpentry skills and, and, and some basic tools? I mean, not skills. They had the skills, just needed the tools. And I saw these things and I was moved and I was filled with compassion. And on, on a number of occasions, I choked back tears and, and I thought and was determined in my heart and in my mind, I'm going to come back and lead my family to do something to help these people. And my thoughts were centered on these things I've just mentioned, uh, uh, food and water and, and things along those lines. And it was on this long train ride back home that the truth of chapter 7 came crashing in on me and gripped my heart. I mean, I wasn't reading the book at that time and didn't think exactly in these lines. But the understanding and the importance of what we've talked about this week and read came abundantly clear to me. Gary and I woke up in the middle of this trip at some ungodly hour in the morning. I don't even remember what time it was, and, and, and we weren't praying because I'm not even sure God was awake at that time. But uh, we, were, we were sitting on this train, and Gary, if you know him, he has an amazing heart for missions. And he has been on mission trips and done just about every mission venture and activity that, that, that's possible uh, in his years. And I had been moved by what I had seen, but in the middle of that night on this jostling, noisy train... 
there was something that was unsettled within me. And so when we woke and, and I knew that Gary was awake, I asked him, I said, Gary, how do you guard? How do you guard against losing sight of the gospel when you see the overwhelming human needs around you? How do you not lose sight of the gospel when you see all this stuff? Because what I realized was I was ready to zero out every financial account I had, pack a semi-tractor trailer load full of of water filtration systems and food resources and tools and clothing and, and anything that I could. But in the pull of all of that emotion to meet those needs, I hadn't really stopped and reflected on the spiritual needs and the spiritual condition of those people. And on that ride home, it's like God grabbed my heart and said, Curtis, you know what? You could give them everything that you imagine and you see in your mind. And in a matter of years, every person in this village could have beautiful farmland, stronger, more sturdy houses. They could have uh, clothes and clean drinking water. But Curtis, if they haven't heard and received the gospel, then they will die and spend eternity separated from me. My compulsion to help meet needs made me stop and ask myself, is my goal, is my way of thinking in all this, is it to spread the gospel or is it to Americanize people? Because my thoughts so quickly had been consumed with give them stuff. Water and stuff they needed. I'm not saying they didn't need these things, but water and food. and It moved to giving them stuff to not even stop and reflect and think about the truly most important need that all people have, the need for the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And I had to stop and take inventory and, and come to grips with a question. It's the question that I pose to you this morning for your own personal reflection and for you to come to grips with in your own heart and your own spiritual journey and your relationship with Christ. Do you believe that the gospel is the most important thing every person living on this planet needs to hear? Do you believe that? Not just a a, a mental, okay, yeah, I understand it, but a a heart and a spirit that is moved and is burdened and and puts that, that thought, that understanding into practice. Because if we answer that question and say, yes, I do believe that is the most important thing that people need, then it changes everything about our lives. It changes everything because everything about us, everything that we do, everything that we have comes in a distant second to the driving call of Jesus Christ upon our lives to take the gospel message to the billions of people who need to hear it. But you see, part of the the drive and the motivation leads me to a second question that we need to answer as well. And that question is this. Do you believe that every person who doesn't place his or her faith in Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord, will die and be tormented eternally in hell. Do you believe that statement? 
And yes, I'm talking about the pygmies in the dense jungles that, that no one ha- has been to and that, that no, they've not seen a Westerner or, or a missionary go there. And yes, I'm talking about the, the, the millions and millions of devout Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and every other religion in the world that doesn't follow Jesus Christ. Do you believe that their eternal destiny apart from Jesus Christ is to spend eternity in torture and suffering in hell? Do you believe that truth. And if right now in your mind you're, you're going through a but what about or well what if type argument, if you're trying to rationalize and justify and explain that away in some way, then I want to take you back to the book of Romans and as Platt walked through in chapter 7, seeing how every human being on the planet needs the gospel because every human being has rejected God. Because you may be going, well, a just God wouldn't send innocent people to hell. You're right. He wouldn't send innocent people to hell. But what the Bible teaches is there are no innocent people. We have all sinned. We have all rejected God. That's the reason we're separated from him for eternity. Church, we've got to come to grips with this reality and and realize that, that Paul in the book of Romans leaves absolutely no loophole for people getting into heaven except through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It was Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are Jesus' words, not my words. Now, if Jesus knew that there are other ways to heaven and many roads to heaven, and he said that, then he's a liar for having made that statement. Or if he just thought that and there really were other ways, then he was disillusioned and he just didn't know any better. And if he didn't know any better on that, then how can you trust anything else that he said? We've got to come to grips with the reality and the implications of this truth, church. And that brings me to Ezekiel chapter 36 where we see an incredible picture of what happens in the lives of people who respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It changes us and that change compels and moves us to want to take and share the gospel with those who need to hear. In the book of Ezekiel, God has been pronouncing punishments on the nation of Israel for their rejection of him and their disobedience against him. And they were going to be punished and carried off into these distant lands. But in chapter 36, uh, Ezekiel begins to deliver a message from God. It's a message of hope and of God's love and his forgiveness to the Israelites to say that even though there'll be this time of punishment that's there, uh, I'm going to restore and I'm going to bring you back to me as my people. And as he begins to to unveil this, he reminds them of something that we've already seen in the study, which is that the goal of the gospel is God, not us. The goal of the gospel is God, not us. God does what he does for his glory, not ours. And we see that here in Ezekiel 36, verse 22. God speaking through Ezekiel says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. These these are direct words from God when you hear thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. So God says this deliverance, this bringing you out of oppression isn't for your sake. 
It's for my sake, for the sake of my holy name, that people will see the work that I have done in delivering you from this place and this position that you are in. You see, God's work in the world, God's work in our lives, his gift of salvation is not for our benefit or our glory. It's for his benefit and his glory. That means everything that happens in your life. Everything that happens in your life, good, bad, and everywhere in between, and everything you do in your life should be for the glory of God. Let me give you an example from the New Testament of how, this, how complete this truth is in our lives. In John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples are traveling and they come upon a man who was, uh, who was born, had been born from birth. And the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? They saw his blindness as a punishment. He was afflicted for some kind of sin that had taken place. Now remember that the Bible teaches that God had knit this man together in his mother's womb just as God knits every human being together in their mother's womb. So therefore, God had designed and created this man with blindness on purpose. Intentionally did God create him to be blind. It wasn't an accident, oversight, and God go, oh, I forgot to give him his sight. No, God knew what he was doing. Why would he do that? Why would God create someone with blindness? Well, Jesus answers that question by saying, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you get that? The affliction in this man's life wasn't punishment. It was so God could be glorified and so God could display his power in this man's life. In this instance, it was for a miraculous healing. But even if God hadn't chosen to heal him, his blindness would have still been given to him as an opportunity for this man to glorify God. And here's where this gets very personal for us. Your life, everything about your life is meant to glorify God. That means from the highest highs to the lowest lows, your life is designed and is orchestrated by God to bring glory to him. And God receives no greater glory than when sinful, broken people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ because of what they have received and experienced from God are moved to go and share that with other sinful, broken people who can be redeemed and restored through the power of the gospel. That's when God is most glorified. And look at this promise, this amazing promise that Ezekiel, on behalf of God, says will happen when these people return to him, when they come to him, what God says he will do within them. In verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a beautiful description 
of what the gospel does in the lives of people who place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. We're given a new heart. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. But when we place our faith in Christ, then we live. We are regenerated to new life in Christ. We have a new heart and God's spirit lives within us. We're made new. That's why we call it being born again or having new life in Jesus Christ. And if you have time this week, I encourage you to to, uh, look ahead at Ezekiel chapter 37 and read... uh, what's the most, probably the most famous vision from the book of Ezekiel, where it's the valley of dry bones, where Ezekiel looks at it and sees all the, these dead and, and, and bleached by the sun bones that are there, and they come to life, and they come together, all the bones in the right spot, and they begin to get sinews, and they begin to get muscles on them, and then flesh, and there are these, these corpses that are there, and then God breathes and gives them life. And what were dead, dry bones are now living and they come together as an army. Church, that's a picture of regeneration, of new birth in Jesus Christ through the gospel. That we are dead, we are made alive. And we become an army for taking the gospel to others who need to hear. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He meant the gates of hell will not stop this marching army of God's people going to take the gospel to those who desperately need to hear. Nothing can stop us because it's not us. It's God's power working in and through us that gave us life and gives us the power and the strength to overcome as we take this gospel to those who need to hear. And church, make no mistake about it. The responsibility for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth is ours It is our responsibility. You may remember reading through Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, where Paul writes this. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And we walk through, if you start at the end of that passage and work in reverse, you see some some promises of what God is going to do and what God will do in the lives of people uh, who go and are faithful to the call that he places upon their life. First of all, it says that God sends servants. Well, that's a work of God. God's the one uh, who sends us and provides a way for us to go. The servants preach is the second thing. Our task, we are the servants. We're to preach and share the gospel. Then people hear. That's a physical hearing in one sense, but also not just a physical hearing. More importantly, it's a spiritual hearing. Jesus prayed that that God would give them uh, ears to hear what was being spoken. That was that they would have spiritual discernment and understand the gospel message that was being presented to them. When people hear, some, not all, will believe. When people hear the gospel, some will believe that message that is proclaimed. Those who believe will then call on Christ. They recognize their need and they call out to him. And obviously the Bible says everyone who calls on Christ is saved. They're saved through Christ, not through the messenger or the servant who preached the message. But the question was posed, is there a place where this plan can break down. I mean, those are all God's promises. God sends, people hear that's God. God gives the power to believe, and when the believers call, they save. The potential breakdown in that process is if the servants don't preach, if we don't go and share, if we sit in silence, if we do nothing, people will die without hearing the gospel 
and be forever separated from God because they have rejected him and the knowledge that he has given to them. Church, this is why I wanted us to look at the commands and the demands of Jesus presented through radical for the heart of this chapter right here because we must understand, as he stated this week, we are God's plan for taking the gospel to the nations and there is no plan B. It is up to us and the call is so very clear in Scripture. We say, well, how does this work? What does it look like? It looks like us stepping out in obedience and us following God's call uh, and God's direction and leadership in our lives. And he orchestrates it in ways that only he is able to do. In the book of Acts, Philip uh, was told to go and stand on the road that goes down to Gaza. And he went and he stood there. And the Lord said, go stand by that chariot. And Philip didn't say, well, why? Who am I looking for? What's going to go on? He was obedient and he went. He was in the right place at the right time to accomplish God's work that God wanted him to accomplish. We follow that same call of obedience in our lives to be faithful, to step out, to go where God has called us and to trust God and to allow God to orchestrate his will, his plan in and through our lives. We went to Southeast Asia. One of the things that Gary and I did, we were over there, we took a a motorcycle taxi tour through the capital city. There are how many people in the city? 80 million? Is that that, how many? Six to eight million. Okay, six to eight million. There are a bunch of people over there. And the traffic patterns are like nothing you have ever seen unless you've ever been there, all right? If you've ever looked through a kaleidoscope and you turn it and all the pieces fall together, that's like what the traffic scene looks like. It's just in and out, just constant moving and stuff. And so we're going on a motorcycle taxi tour that day in the city of millions and millions of people. One of our, our drivers is a believer. The other young man that he's with is someone he's been building a relationship with, and he's been talking uh, to him about uh, coming to know Christ. And so we take a 45-minute hour ride through the city, a hair-raising ride through the city uh, at times. <laughs> have my video camera out. caught lots of scenes on that trip around. And we stop at this coffee shop and uh, begin to share. And he says, brothers, t- tell us a story. So Gary shares a story from creation to Christ and, and about his goodness. And, and I shared a story as well uh, from, from the good book. And this young man who's there had told us that uh, not too long before he had been arrested, he and his wife had been taken down to the local police station uh, because they had a, a, a church, a cell group that was meeting in their home. They'd been making so much noise and neighbors had turned them in. So they were taking every questioning. So after I shared my story, he looked at me and said, would you like to ask him if he wants to, uh, to become a child of the most high God? And I went, I'm in the middle of this city where I'm not supposed to be doing this type of work and these efforts. You told me you got arrested 10 days ago, and now you're asking me if I would. I was like, I'm not sure. He goes, it's okay, it's okay. And so I said, Lord, you brought us here, and this is your timing. This is only something that you can do to have taken me however many hours away. It was a long trip to get over there that many days. But, but we were there at just this time, and I said, would you like to place your faith in the Most High God and become one of his children today. And that young man said, yes, he would. And so we walk through the gospel, God's plan of salvation. And right there next to that lake with all the hustle and bustle going on in that city, that young man came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. Friends, that's how it works. I couldn't have planned and orchestrated that in a thousand years. But God in his sovereignty and God in his limitless power brought us together at that point in that time to accomplish his will and his purpose in that way. I want to challenge you, church, 
to strike the words silent witness from your vocabulary. Strike the words silent witness from your vocabulary. Because if you live your life in faithful obedience and radical abandonment to Jesus Christ, you can't help but speak and tell others of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. You can't be silent because of all that you've received and all that he's doing in your life. But secondly, and I hope you understand this, and I want you to get this picture in your mind. If you were to live your life as a silent witness all the days of your life, you're faithful, you're true, your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, they see your commitment to your church. They, they, they see you, you love to read God's word and you love to pray and that you grow and that, that, you, uh, that, that you live a, a, a solid Christian life of character and integrity. And all they do. If they see all of that, that you live before them, but if they die without you ever sharing so that they can hear the gospel and respond to it, then they will spend eternity in hell. They will have seen your witness and it will have done no good in their lives apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan wants us. It's one of his deceptions to think of this silent witness. Well, I'll live my life like I'm supposed to and people will just, they'll come to know Jesus. Prince, that's like fish jumping in the boat when you go fishing. Well, if I go out and have the right tackle and the right stuff and it's all in the boat with me, then the fish are going to come and jump in the boat. I don't fish a whole lot, but I don't think that's the way it works. We've got to share the gospel. And if we do it for no other reason, we need to do it for this reason, church. We are commanded to. Jesus tells us to share the gospel. And the new heart that we're given in Ezekiel 36, the new heart said we're going to want to do what? We're going to want to obey his rules and his commands and his statutes. We want to be obedient to what Jesus commands us and calls us to do. And I titled the the sermon title this morning, A House of Cards. And I use that title because I don't want us to get so distracted by last week's message that we fall prey to another deception of Satan. You know, I I believe the light bulb's going off for people. I got an email this week of just how God is really using a number of different things to converge in a person's life. And they're coming to grips with with their, their materialism and just what's taking place in their own life. And we're just sharing with me how God is just doing such a work within him and his family. And maybe you're moved to that point where you're willing to leverage everything that you've been blessed with to help meet the needs of some of the most impoverished people of the world. Well, let me tell you, Satan didn't want that. But now that the ball's rolling and he realizes he's powerless to stop it, he's going to go to plan B because he does have a plan B. And it's to distract you or to get you so focused on meeting human needs and pouring yourself into that that we could stop short of the most important need. That's of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our house of cards. I mean, look, it was, oh, well, there's a house. It's good. We're, we're pouring ourselves into this, but it's a house of cards that can fall and be washed away in a second. Satan basically says, well, if you're going to do something, then give them stuff. Give them clean water. Give them food. Give them clothing and shelter and tools and equipment and all that stuff, and you'll be doing your good Christian duty. But we could abundantly meet every human need. And people will still die and spend eternity in hell apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
you know, I said this about where we share a couple of weeks ago, you know, having a heart for, for America or our, our local area and a heart for the nations. And I said then, I say it again today in this, this isn't an either or proposition. It is both and. It's not that we either meet human needs or, or we meet spiritual needs. We're to meet both human physical needs and the spiritual needs that people have. It's what Jesus did. He set the example for us. Jesus healed the sick. He fed the masses. He raised people from the dead to comfort those who were grieving. But Jesus was the gospel. And he invited people to come and place their faith in him. And he called them to follow after him. He was the embodiment of both and meeting human needs and calling people to the gospel. And we see that and and we begin to be obedient. And as we serve people and as we give, it opens doors for us to be able to share. Because people say, why are you doing this? And think about what an indictment that is on humanity that when you do something kind for someone, they stop and say, well, why are you doing that? What does that say about us as people? We've gone before to give out light bulbs and batteries and different things around our community. We'll knock on doors, try to give to people. And they're like, well, you want a donation? Why are you doing this? You know, what do you want from me? They're suspicious when you give of yourself. You know what that says about humanity? It says that our default condition, the heart of stone that Ezekiel spoke about, is selfish. We are selfish. We are self-centered. And when we see someone doing something kind and generous and giving of themselves, we say, well, why are you doing that? I'm not doing that. People don't behave this way normally. And we're able to say, it's because I've been given a new heart. I've been given a new spirit through Jesus Christ. And because of what I've received, I want to serve you. And I want to, to do and share in this way so that you can know, and I want you to hear from me, that God loves you as well, and he wants to give you a new heart. He wants to give you a new spirit, and he wants you to become one of his children. Someone sent a video link this week, and it's on our our Facebook page at mpbclife.com, and if you get eight minutes this week, eight minutes, sit down and watch this video, which is an amazing challenge about what the heart of God should look like in his children as his children do everything they can possibly do to meet both the spiritual and physical needs who desperately need both in this world today. And as you watch that video, as you think about the truths from today and we come to our time of invitation, I want to invite you to reflect upon and prayerfully consider the questions I've asked you today. Do you really believe that every person in the world who dies without placing his or her faith in Jesus Christ will spend eternity separated from God in hell? Do you really believe that? If you say yes, you believe that, then the next question for you is this. What are you going to do as a result? What are you going to do as a result of that conviction?